Romans chapter 5. We are uh, continuing our preaching series through the book of Romans. And we've looked uh, already at, at uh, we've had several messages on Romans 5 already. Last week we looked at uh, the contrast between Adam and Christ as the second Adam, how in, in Adam all sinned, and in Christ we are justified. In Adam we are under the reign of death, and in Christ we are under the reign of, of life. And so we continue now with, uh, this will be the last uh, message from Romans 5. So looking at Romans 5, verses 13 and 14, and verses 20 to 21. The, there was a part of uh, Romans that we left out last week, and that was the topic of the law. And so we're going to address that in the message this morning. We'll also be looking at verses 18 and 19, but I'm, just, I'm not going to address those in the message. I'll just say a brief word about them as we read them. So Romans 5, starting at verse 13, and if you would, please bow as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, how good it is to gather as your children, to gather in worship, to, to sing of your grace. Lord, we praise you, we honor you, and we pray now, Lord, that as we continue to worship through the hearing and the speaking of your word, I, I pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would be poured out. I pray that you would cultivate our hearts, O oh Lord, that we might receive the deep truths of your word, that they would be planted deep in us. They might bear fruit of transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to you. Do your work in us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me, Romans 5, starting at verse 13. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So the Apostle Paul says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin, he says, is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one who is to come. And then over to verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, Paul says, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners... So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. I'm going to say just a, a brief word about that for, for one minute, because um, I'm not addressing that, that topic in the, in the message this morning. But when Paul says in verse 18, that just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made, or in verse 18, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. There are some 
who object that say, well, it sounds like Paul is teaching universalism there, that, that Paul is saying that, that all people are saved, that all people are, are justified, and that's, uh, that's not what, what Paul is, is saying. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, there is a grammatical reason for that, uh, so a, a grammatical explanation for that. Um, so there is a, a what's called the categorical sense of the word all. You can use the all in, in different senses, and you can use it in a categorical sense. And so the way I would translate that, which I, is not a, a literal translation, but I think is a translation that gets at the, this categorical sense in which Paul is using the word all here, I would translate it this way. Uh, so all, uh, just as that one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people in Adam, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people in Christ. That is the sense, I think, that Paul is clearly conveying in this as the context of Romans makes very clear that Paul is very clearly not teaching that all are saved, but that, um, that all who are in Christ are justified and saved. And then picking it up at verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may be seated. When I was a young boy, I went over to a friend's house one day, and, and uh, his mom had just, just made a, a whole pan of, of chocolate peanut butter bars. And so, uh, and then we left. And so, um, my friend and I, after we were playing for a little while, we, we took a little break, and, and, uh, and, and yeah, he asked me if I wanted one of those bars. And they were my favorite kind of bars, so of course I said yes. And so we each had a bar, and then, and then he asked me if I wanted another one. Well, I never even thought that there was a possibility that one might be able to have more than one piece of dessert. And, and so I said to him, well, you know, can, can we do that? You know, can, can we have more than one? And he said, well, you know, uh, my mom's not here. And, and she never said that we could only have one. And so, uh, yeah, you know, so she never said that we couldn't. And so we had another and then another and another and another until, until finally the entire pan was gone. We, the two of us ate a whole pan of chocolate peanut butter bars. And even as we kept on eating one bar after another, we had this vague sense that it probably wasn't right, that it probably wasn't a good thing to do. Uh, but we just, we just, we just kind of kept on going, clinging to the idea that, that technically speaking, we were not guilty of any offense because nothing had been written or stated about how many bars we could have. And of course, we paid the price a little bit later when we both had such bad stomach aches that the day had to be called off and it had to be sent home. The story illustrates, as we'll see, the relation between, between sin and the law. And that is really the, the topic that Paul is addressing in our verses that we're looking at this morning. And Paul wants to show us uh, several things about this, this relationship between sin and the law. So Paul first wants us to see that sin came before the law. He says in verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. 
Now, as we saw last week, Paul had said in verse 12 that sin entered the world through Adam and that in Adam all sin. So that what, what Paul is teaching here is that, is that, that uh, Adam's sin was imputed to all of humanity. So that in, when Adam sinned in the garden, his sin was, was charged to, to all, uh, all accounts of humanity. But Paul understands that many of his Jewish listeners might object to that statement that, that, uh, that in Adam all sinned uh, because they understood sin as a breaking of God's law. That, that is what sin was to them. To be a sinner was to be a transgressor, which is technically a law breaker. And so how could the people who lived before the time of Moses be sinners when there was not yet any law to break? And in fact, Paul himself had said back in chapter 4, he said, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So wouldn't it naturally follow that, that those who lived before the time of Moses were not sinners? And Paul's answer to that question is that while they would not be counted as transgressors in that technical sense, because again, transgression is by definition a breaking of God's law. So while they would not be counted as transgressors in that technical sense, they were still sinners in Adam. And Paul puts it this way in verse 13. He says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, what he is saying is that without the law, there is no transgression in that technical sense. There, there is no explicit law-breaking. There is no defined and, and categorized violation of a specifically revealed command. But that doesn't mean that there was no sin. Those who lived before Moses were still sinners and still under the condemnation of sin, even if they weren't technically charged or reckoned, as some translations say, as lawbreakers. As Paul puts it in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin. And what he means is those who did not sin in the technical sense of transgression by breaking a command. In one of his sermons from long ago, uh, Chuck Swindoll illustrates Paul's point here with a story from his childhood. He said that when he was a boy, he had a paper route, and, and he hated that paper route. He, he you know, such a drag to have to get up early every morning and to get on his bike and to drive, you know, to bike around the neighborhood to, delivering papers. It was it was such a, a a chore for him to do that. So he found little ways to to make his paper route go a little bit faster. He cut corners, literally cut corners. He would find those homes that were on corner lots instead of taking the sidewalk, you know, all the way around. He would cut across those those lawns. And uh, at one particular home, he had done this so frequently that he had worn a little trail in that person's lawn. And he had this vague, again, this vague sense that it probably wasn't right, you know, that it, that it probably was not appreciated by the homeowner. But again, there, that no one ever said anything. And so he just kept on doing it. And then one day, as he approached that home with his, with his papers in, in his little bag, he came to that home and he saw a sign in the grass, a sign in the lawn. And the sign was written in bold letters with exclamation marks, and it said, keep off the grass, no bikes allowed. And what did he do? He saw the sign, 
And he just kept right on riding on his well-worn trail across the path. And he rode right up to the waiting feet of the angry homeowner who had written that sign and who had some choice words for the young Swindoll. And the point, Swindoll says, the point of his story is this. That before that sign was put up, what he was doing was wrong, but it couldn't technically be counted against him. The, the appearance of the sign brought into focus and definition his wrongdoing. And, and to use Paul's language, the appearance of that sign brought him from a sinner in the general sense to a transgressor in the technical sense. And this is what the law does. It brings into sharper focus and accountability human sin. But as Paul makes clear in our text, and what he wants us to see in the context of his discussion here, is that sin was still there before the law, so that even those who lived before Moses were sinners and lived under the reign of death. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to see, that sin came before the law. The second thing that Paul wants us to see is that sin increased through the law. So Paul says... In verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Well, well, that is a shocking statement, especially for Paul's Jewish audience. Because they saw the law as the great restrainer of, of, of sin, as, as the means to righteousness. And we have to, be, we have to be careful not to read this statement with, with, with blinders on, because there is a complexity to Paul's theology of the law. There are multiple functions of the law in Paul's theology, and, and, and there is a sense in which the law functions to restrain sin. There is a, a very positive sense to the law, even in Paul's understanding of it. And so, for example, Paul will say in Romans 7, verse 10, that, that the law was intended to bring life. There is a positive expression of the law. Read Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, the psalms that so beautifully celebrate the, the beauty of the law, and Paul would not disagree with that. But what Paul wants us to see here is that one of the overarching purposes of the law was to make sin increase, and this was by God's design. When, when Paul says that the law came in so that the trespass might increase, this, that expression so that implies divine purpose. It was God's design and God's intent that sin increased through the law. As we'll see in Romans, uh, you'll, you'll develop this thought much more fully in Romans 9 through 11. And as we'll see there, this was part of God's plan to make the Jews see that they could not attain the righteousness they needed through the law. That, that, the, that the law was a dead end in terms of a means to righteousness and that the dead end of the law would lead some of them then to the, to the true way of righteousness through faith in Christ alone. That is, that is part of God's purpose in the law and specifically his purpose with, with many of the Jews. As Paul will put it in Romans 10, their failure to attain righteousness through the law will cause some to see that Christ that Christ the person, Christ himself, is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness, not through your own obedience to the law, not through your own works trying to attain the law or to attain righteousness through the law, but righteousness for everyone who believes, who has faith in Christ. And so part of God's plan for the law was to make sin increase so that many and many 
Jews in particular, would be driven beyond the law to faith in Christ. But we might wonder, if we take that statement of Paul that the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, so that sin might increase. Well, in what, in what specific ways does the law make sin increase? Like, well, what, does that, what does that look like? And we find in Scripture at least three ways. Paul says, uh, first, the first way is that the law increases our knowledge of sin. So Paul says in Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so the law increases our knowledge, our awareness of sin. We are able to, to name and to understand and to identify things that we wouldn't really have known as sin apart from the law. That's the first way that the law increases, that makes sin increase. A second way that the law makes sin increase is that it intensifies the seriousness of sin. Without the law, we may have a vague sense that some act is wrong, but, but when the law is established, that act is then in, an act of willful rebellion against God, which is a much more serious offense. Again, as Paul says, uh, said in Romans 4, verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression, which implies that where there is law, there is transgression, which again is, is a breaking of God's command. And so the law transforms mere wrongdoing into willful trespass or rebellion. So again, to go back to my little story of when I was a, when I was a little boy, when my friend and I ate that whole pan of bars, we, we had this vague sense of wrongdoing. There was there a little, you know, something in our conscience was telling us this probably isn't right. This gnawing pang of guilt that said we probably shouldn't be doing what we were doing. But if his mom had specifically told us not to eat more than one bar or had given a specific amount that we were allowed to eat, then that same act would have been an act of willful rebellion. A specific breaking of her command. And that would be a much more serious offense, most likely with more serious consequences than just a stomachache. And so to the law intensifies the seriousness of our sin. And finally, a third way that the law makes sin increase is that the law actually provokes us to sin. Again, going back to Romans 7, Paul says, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But then Paul goes on to say even more than that. He says that this newfound awareness of sin actually provokes us to sin even more. He goes on to say in verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Notice that language, the, that the, the commandment, the law, uh, affords an opportunity. It provides this, 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 this open window. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. And through the commandment, put me to death. Now, we, we know how this goes, don't we? This is going to give you a little example. You're, you're enjoying a, a nice, uh, a nice uh, hike in the mountains alongside a, a mountain stream, right? Beautiful. It's a beautiful day. Birds are singing. Blue skies. There's a beautiful trail. And there's a nice, beautiful 
clear mountain stream alongside you, and you're, you're walking down this trail. And then as you're walking, you, you, you see this, you come upon a sign next to the trail that says, no sifting for gold in the stream. Right? Well, it had never entered your mind to sift for gold in the stream. You didn't even know that there was gold in that stream. But guess what? Now you do. And now you know. And now that you know that there is gold in the stream, you can't stop thinking about it. And it keeps calling out to you, and it keeps enticing you, and it keeps gnawing at you until finally you just give in and you start to say, oh, I got to find out what's in there. And you start sifting for gold in the stream. When Lori was a little girl, her mom came home one day with a microwave, and this was a new thing for them. They hadn't had one before, and, and her mom said to her and her sister that the one rule, you know, now we have this microwave, the one rule is that you can't put anything with metal in the microwave. Now, what, what, what happens when you tell kids or anybody, you know, here's the one thing you can't do? Well, they're, of course, they're going to be intrigued and want to do that one thing. Well, they never would have thought to put metal in the microwave. Why would you put microwave, but now that the rule had been given, right, they began to wonder, well, what might happen if you do put metal in the microwave? And so the, the first chance they had, the first time their mom left, they decided to give it a try. They dug out their old, their, their gold-rimmed dishes, and they took one of those plates, and they put it in the microwave, and soon discovered why it is that it was forbidden, as they saw the microwave light up with sparks and flames. The law provokes us to sin. These are just some of the ways, I'm sure there are others, ways uh, that the law makes sin increase. But Paul, in, in Romans 5, Paul doesn't leave us in that, that pit of, of sin and the law. In fact, his whole point in talking about sin and the law is to, is to drive us to something better, to drive us to the wonder of grace. That's where Paul is, is, is wanting to take us in this text. That's where, he, that's where he's driving at in this text. He wants us to see that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He says in verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, it's, it's really hard to capture in English the magnitude of what Paul is saying, and I don't think that I can do it. I'm going to try to explain it, and even in trying to explain it, I know it's going to fall short. But the, so the NIV tra- tries to draw out the contrast by saying that where sin increased, grace increased all the more, right? But, but that falls short of the impact of the Greek. Because when, when Paul says uh, that sin increased, uh, sin increased, He's using the Greek word pleonazo, which means to increase considerably, considerably, to become more and more, to multiply. But when Paul says that grace increased all the more, he doesn't use the same word as the NIV does. So the NIV tries to draw the contrast this way, an increase and an increase all the more. But Paul uses two different words, right? So the, when he talks about grace increasing all the more, he doesn't use the word pleonazo, an emphatic form of that word, which he maybe could, he could have done. He uses a different word altogether. He uses the Greek word hyperparasuo. Now, I don't expect you to remember this, but last week we looked at, at the, the root of that word, the, the verb parasuo from verse 15. 
where Paul used that word parasuo to refer to God's grace overflowing. And we saw last week that is that word in itself, just parasuo, is, a, is an emphatic word. It's a strong, vivid word that means to superabound. It, it means to, to exist in such abundance that there are leftovers, right? It's a rich, beautiful, sort of excessive kind of outpouring sort of a word. And now in verse 20, Paul uses an emphatic form of that same verb. So uh, he, he, uh, he adds the prefix hyper to it, which we do in English as well. You can either be sensitive or hypersensitive. You can be paranoid or hyper-paranoid. You can be a Calvinist or a hyper-Calvinist, right? Paul adds the prefix hyper to this strong, emphatic verb to give it the sense of the greatest possible degree. Where sin increased, Paul says, grace didn't just superabound, grace hyper superabounded. Paul is like, he's inventing words here, right? And so uh, grace superabounded to the extreme. The sense is that where sin increased, grace superabounded in overwhelming measure. The picture is that sin cannot outmeasure grace. If sin is like a flickering flame that, that slowly consumes a dry twig in the forest, then grace, grace is like a gushing flood that not only extinguishes that flame, but it turns the whole forest into a swamp. I wish that I could just take the sense of the Greek and implant it into your minds, but I, I, so I, I know that even this explanation is falling short, but... Such it is. Translation, as somebody once said, is like kissing your bride through the veil. Something is always lost. It's never as rich as the real thing. Charles Spurgeon said of this superabounding grace, what an abyss is the grace of God. Who can measure its breadth? Who can fathom its depth? In one of his hymns, Samuel Davies wrote, Pardon from an offended God, pardon for sins of deepest dye, pardon bestowed through Jesus' blood, pardon that brings the rebel nigh. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? And Paul goes on to reveal the purpose of this hyper superabounding grace. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, there's that, that purpose clause for this purpose, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the, the purpose of this, this superabounding grace is to bring people to eternal life through the righteousness of Christ. Remember, Paul, Paul has been talking all about righteousness in, 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 in Romans. And so his purpose was to usurp the throne of sin that had left all people under the rule of death and to put in its place the throne of grace so that all who are in Christ are brought from death to life. There's two dominions, two kingdoms, two, two kings. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has crossed over from one kingdom to the other, from death to life. In the uh, loosely paraphrased language of Tim Keller, uh, this text in Romans 5 shows us two great and deep gospel truths. 
It shows us first that we are more sinful than we, than we could ever imagine. And it shows us second that God is more gracious than we ever dared to dream. In Adam, we are charged as treasonous sinners and condemned to death. In Christ, we are counted, credited as righteous and, and given eternal life. Where sin increased, grace hyper, super abounded all the more. This is the beautiful truth at the heart of this, this text. And, and that is really the, the message of hope that, that continues to, to sustain us as followers of Christ. Because the truth is, whether we know this about ourselves or not, most of us do, but whether we know it or not, the truth is that in our daily rhythm of life as believers, as followers of Christ, we still sin, don't we? We, we keep adding to our sins. Throughout any given day or week, we can see the, the fruit of our sinful nature. You know, as you're reading the, the Sermon on the Mount, read any place in Scripture, and, and you'll soon be convicted of, of oh, again, just within the past hour, I fell short again. We see our own acts of rebellion and, and selfishness and lust and, and greed and anger and hypocrisy and pride, and the list goes on and on and on. But even in this daily rhythm of sinfulness, grace still abounds. When we add to the stream of sinfulness in our own lives, in our own daily, day-by-day living, God's grace is still today like a flood that engulfs the stream. Washing away our guilt and our shame. Cleansing us, renewing us, forgiving us again and again and again. His supply of grace never runs dry. His stream of mercy never stops flowing. And there, there are some here this morning who, who need to hear what Paul is telling us through this text. That, that, that you, you need, to, you need this, this, this word of encouragement that Paul is conveying to us. You are burdened by guilt and shame. You're feeling defeated in the battle against sin. You've slipped up again. Return to the, the same old habits, the same old patterns. And you think, oh God, how could I have done that again? How could God, God must, how could God ever accept me when I just keep going back to the same things? You've grown complacent in the pursuit of holiness and you've allowed your sinfulness to increase. And God's message to you through this text is to keep on fighting that battle against sin and to do so knowing that if you are in Christ, that grace is what defines you. That, that grace is the sea in which you have been plunged. That grace is the grip by which you have been seized. Grace is the word that has been written indelibly on your heart. If you are in Christ, then even your backsliding and even your doubts and even your sin cannot pry you from the grip of grace that God has on you. If you are in Christ and even through those seasons where your sinfulness increases, grace is still abounding all the more. We could put it in the present tense. Paul said where sin, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increases, grace still abounds all the more. 
You have been brought into the kingdom of Christ where grace reigns and grace triumphs and grace overwhelms and grace conquers. And grace will sustain your righteousness and carry you to eternal life in Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse said Adam had not gone very far from the scene of his rebellion before the grace of God sought him, called him by name, and pursued him in the obscurity of the grove where he was hiding. This is what God does. This is how the grace of God works. It pursues to overwhelm sin. Where where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. This is the message that, that streams like a flood from Calvary. You see, the trespass of Adam had reached its hideous climax in the rejection of Christ at the cross, and it seemed that sin had once and for all triumphed. But even there, it was the grace of God that, that overwhelmed the sin, for the sin, for the sin that was meant to bring destruction and death. All it did is open the flood and life. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. In the early 1900s, uh, Mel Trotter's life was consumed by gambling and alcohol. He couldn't hold a job as a drunk. He couldn't provide for his family. And so they went from town to town, and he went from job to job just trying to kind of cobble everything of their, their, their lives together, but everything, everything was broken. And Mel knew that it was his fault, and he hated the life that he was living, and he tried his level best to change it, but he didn't have it within him to change. He couldn't do it. And he began descending farther and farther, and he started leaving home for weeks at a time, unable to control his drunken binges, and they got, they got more severe and, 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 and longer in duration. And the low point finally came when he came back home one day after one of his long drunken binges to find that his two-year-old daughter, that their two-year-old daughter had died because his wife didn't have the resources to give her the care that she needed. And even then, even in that, in that, that abysmal moment, Mel was still so gripped by alcohol that he took his little girl's shoes from her coffin and sold them to buy himself a drink. But it was in that, that low point of his sin that, that God's grace pursued him. Still drunk from after his daughter's funeral, he staggered into a local rescue mission where he was converted. And God's grace just, just flooded into his life. And it so flooded into his life that not only did he stop drinking and gambling, but he went on to become a, a powerful and a fruitful minister and evangelist. And by the end of his life, he had founded more than 67 rescue missions under the, the banner and the name of Mel Trotter Ministries serving thousands of people across the United States and bringing thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. James Boyce said, 
follow sin and sin will usher you to hell and smirk as you stagger through the door. Follow sin and sin will usher you to hell and smirk as you stagger through the door. But oh, the wonder of grace. For grace, he says, sees us staggering and comes alongside to help. Grace pours out the inexhaustible riches of Christ into us. Grace sees us dying and breathes into us eternal life. May we live in the wonder and the hope of this hyper, super abounding grace. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we come before your, your throne in a time of silent response and prayer, Lord, it's, it's, it's impossible for us to fully fathom the depth of your grace. It's impossible for us to fully comprehend and behold the beauty of your grace. But Lord, I pray that you would take us a little deeper into it and unveil just a little bit more of it to us this morning that we may be filled, Lord, with renewed wonder and gratitude over this hyper, super abounding grace that overwhelms our sin. Sin and despair. Oh, Lord, may we see the wonder of your grace like a flood that overwhelms. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, we praise you for the glory of your grace. May we live in it to your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond.